Hey guys, Becky here. A quick trigger warning before we start. The films we're talking about today deal with topics of sexual assault as well as death by cancer and some other heavy stuff, so it may be disturbing to some listeners. Thank you as always for listening, and now on with the show. After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland is coming back. I promise he's coming back. He is just in the middle of award season, so he's either watching a ton of movies or he is on a red carpet somewhere asking excellent questions of very important fancy people. You can tune into Hollywood Suite to watch him do that. He'll be back very soon. But for now, guys, I have this director that I am so into his work right now. I got to meet him at the Blood in the Snow Festival where he was premiering his film, Happy Face. It was awesome. Alexandre Funky is with me today. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for the intro. It's uh, no, my pleasure, because like I said, you're now one of my new favorite filmmakers. <laughs> I'm, I'm so into your stuff. And you're coming to me from Montreal, which is also very exciting. Quebecois filmmakers for the Thanks. win. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Happy Face, because I'm still thinking about this. I mentioned it on the Twitter during Blood in the Snow when it first came out as one of my favorites, and I got to see a screener of it. And uh, tell me a little bit about the film and how it came to be, because it's kind of wild. It came to be because the root of Happy Face comes from my own life, because um, I was raised by a single mom, a French immigrant from France. Uh, We were in Montreal, and um, she was was a cosmetician, a beautician. She used to work for Christian Dior, Lancôme, and she was very pretty. Basically, she, her whole life revolved around her appearance and her beauty and um, the beauty industry. And when I was five, she got breast cancer. And so she went through the treatments, the surgeries, and that disease came and went throughout uh, well, all my teenage years. And basically, as her looks faded away because of the treatments, so did her definition of herself. And I I witnessed firsthand what um, the impacts uh, of the tyranny of beauty and the pressures uh, of our society could do to uh, a woman. And so as a teenager, I felt the desire to help her because I loved her. And yet I felt a little bit ashamed of her. You know, I was a little bit disgusted by or put off by the scars. uh, And as a teenager, you're always ashamed of your parents, even when they're normal, you know, and when there's nothing wrong with them. And so I was kind of torn, this desire to help her and this desire to flee. And that caused, created the immense guilt in me uh, later on in life after she passed away. And I think Happy Face is a way for me to bring catharsis to that emotion and let it out and explore what we feel when we look at somebody that looks different, that looks disgusting and we don't want them to be disgusting, and yet we have this revulsion reflex. And so I wanted to explore that. Happy Face is a mix of telling my story and telling the story of disfigured people. Uh, and I didn't use makeup. I took people who were really disfigured or facially different, and I wove a story mixing theirs and my own. Now, they are actual people with deformities, and that was fascinating to me because that could also be seen as incredibly exploitative, but it's different from a film like The Sentinel where they cast those people as demons from hell. You've cast them in a way where they're getting to tell their own stories and sort of reclaim them and put them on film in an interesting way. Uh, have you gotten any feedback on the way you did that? Uh, no, I got. I remember it was hard to finance the film because some funding institutes institutions told me, well, you're a you know, normal-looking guy. Uh, will you exploit these 
these people, the character is actually unlikable. Because in the story, the premise of Happy Face is a 19-year-old man, Stan, a young man, who can't deal with his mom's illness. And so he puts bandages on his face and disguises himself as a disfigured person and attends a workshop for disfigured people uh, in order to become less shallow and to, to learn how to cope with ugliness. So the premise sounds exploitative. I haven't got any negative feedback after that from all the press we got and all the reviews. And actually, when I recruited the, the actors, non-actors, the people playing themselves, the disfigured patients or people, um, I told them, I said, a lot of people said, we're exploiting you. And they were like, well, exploit away. You know, we always wanted to be in a film. And honestly, in a film, we exploit actresses. We exploit actors. We'll exploit uh, Julia Roberts's looks. We'll exploit, um, I don't know, uh, the, the good looks of uh, Daniel Craig and his muscles. So that's basically film is that in a way we take the charisma of somebody and put it out there. But it was not exploitative in the sense of uh, well, taking people and making them play monsters or evil people just because they have a scar, because that's kind of basic. People actually came out of this movie crying. Some changed. I have had testimonials of people saying they would talk to estranged family members, uh, uh, some people in the film who acted in the film started to go out more of their houses, becoming less uh, social phobic, and some even have helped other people in the community, people who just had have had face surgeries. So, so far, the results have been good. And I, I became less shallow as you know because I made the film. I became less of a dick, a superficial dick. <laughs> Art improving all of us. And your previous <laughs> film, The Wild Hunt, dealt with LARPers who all of a sudden go full Lord of the Flies. And uh, it's, uh, again, it's it's got these elements of, like, social consciousness and, like, how far are we from, like, total de-evolution of civilization combined with these, like, super heightened, incredibly violent moments. There's not a lot of violence in uh, Happy Face, but there are a lot of moments which, again, could be considered exploitative. I don't feel like they are. Yeah, you have these moments of shock within the social commentary. Is this going to be a running theme for you? What what, what appeals yeah. to you about that? Thanks for picking <laughs> up on that. Uh, I, I didn't wish it that way. It just happens that way. But now after two films, um, I am interested in violence and not only physical violence, but psychological violence because Happy Face has a lot of that. And I think also in dark humor because my films are quite funny at times because I think life is like that. Life is very tragic and yet very funny. And when we live in a world where in Canada, for instance, or you know, or in Northern Europe, we're not subjected too much to physical violence and like big invasions and plagues like in the, the old times, but our world is increasingly psychologically violent, you know, in terms of financial pressure, in terms of uh, social pressures, in terms of um, uh, the internet and, and the media and um, the differences between people who include other people and people who want to close their circles out of fear. Yeah, I guess that's how I see the world. I try to make opposites clash in my film and hopefully the characters go take strength in their imaginary worlds and use this imaginary world to actually cope with the real world. Uh, which is something I've tried to do in my life. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a process of psychoanalysis through your films and the films <laughs> influencing me and vice versa. And uh, if they could connect with other people and if other people see some value in that, well, then I'm happy. 
Well, I think that's usually the biggest bridge that a lot of filmmakers have to do because there is this whole like write what you know thing and then you have to ask yourself, what do I know and how do I write that in a way that's interesting and compelling for other people without becoming self-indulgent? And yeah. people like yourself, people like Cronenberg, people like Sarah Pauly, they find these really interesting ways of altering the view and creating these fictionalized stories so they can tell points of their own lives uh, through horror, through drama, through uh, compelling film. So they are writing about what they know, but it's twisted in a way that is exploring themselves, exploring the concept, and hopefully exploring what it means to be human in a totally different way. And you picked a film today, which I am very excited about, which kind of encapsulates all of those things. What movie did you pick today? Uh, well, just before I go into the movie, thanks for the comparison to Sarah's work and David Cronenberg's work, because I really like their work. And uh, I'm going to try to up my game to eventually reach their level. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so I picked a, a movie by Denis Arcand, a movie from the 70s called Gina. Aha. Guys, it is so good. It's so good. It is so worth your time. 1975, it's available to rent on iTunes for three dollars. So go do it. It is worth your money. And also just seeing like one of our most celebrated filmmakers, second feature film fictional and, and to see his evolution into becoming this incredible Academy Award nominated winner of filmmaker and all the little seeds. It's like watching early Cronenberg, all the little seeds of what they're going to become and and just how freaking good he was, how early. You talked a little bit about before we started the show why you picked this movie, but why did you pick this movie? It's got some skidoos in it. It's it's got yeah. some snow, it's got some stripping, it's got some skidoo gangs, it's got violence. Uh, not the right kind of violence, the kind of violence right now, if we saw this, everybody would have a trigger attack and we would all need therapy. But back in the day, it's got, uh, well, rape, basically, which is not great, but which is kind of like shocking. Uh, it takes place in a, in a small Quebec village of Mauricie, and there's this um, strip dancer, Gina, who everybody likes and everybody loves. And at one point, she gets raped by a rowdy gang of uh, skidoers, kind of like motorcyclists of the snow. And um, her manager comes from the big city with two goons and the exact vengeance, brutal vengeance on the motorcycle gang. And, uh, and at the same time, you have a documentary crew making a film about the textile workers in Quebec, uh, interviewing the, the workers. And um, the film can continue because the... Well, kind of the equivalent of the National Film Board uh, censors it because of textile. The, the textile industry puts pressure on the federal government, which is actually what happened to Denis Arcand, the director, when he was making documentaries. He made a documentary called On est au coton about the textile workers' plight, their union struggles, uh, the diseases they contract, uh, the working conditions, and it got censored because the textile industry said it was biased and made pressure on the federal government. And the NFB was part of the, is part of the federal government, and they censored it. And so Arcan kind of transcended that, uh, made this movie by using the codes of exploitation films, and actually you you taught me that before before the interview began, and funded it through an um, exploitation film company and yet passed his message through it. So the film actually blows your mind. You know, you're a young guy, you watch this, you're a bit of a geek, you're a bit of a nerd, you like stupid movies in the 80s, and that you, you know, you, you're ashamed now of actually saying you liked. And then at the same time, you got the social commentary. So it actually 
caters to both sides of your teenage personality. Uh, you know, the stupid the kind of like uh, sex-driven, sex-mad teenager who's still a virgin and the guy who wants to change the world. That's why it's my favorite movie or one of my favorite movies. This movie is freaking wild. I had heard of it, but I hadn't seen it before. And as I told you before the show started, I watched this with my boyfriend, who does not always want to watch the movies that I watch for the podcast. And uh, I pitched this to him. He's like, all right, put it on. Let's see. And by the end of it, he was literally on the end of his seat, just being like, this is happening right now. I'm like, yeah, this is happening. This is bananas. It is boffo at the very end. There is (laughs) nothing Tarantino has made that can kind of compare to the level of violence, how fast the ending is. Uh, just how com- incredibly wild and <laughs> Let's not exaggerate. Let's not exaggerate. You know what, Becky? We should undersell it. We should underpromise and overdeliver that film. Uh, it's so good. It's, so bad, just... it's not that good. Okay? <laughs> it's not like Tarantino because it's like 70s. So it's it's cheesy. It's done with you know little means. Yet for the hip kids of today, it's got that 70s vintage rural Quebec feel that just for that is worth watching, right? The suits, the motorcycle, the mo- the um, the skidoo suits, right? The look the of the car. bar, the car, the aesthetic of it. Like if you wore that shit right now in the Myland in Montreal, you'd be the hippest cat in the zone <laughs> with your little bagels and stuff so or brooklyn so just for that it's worth to watch and then you're gonna get the rest for me it's the <laughs> making of it like when you watch that there is like a full-on chase scene between like a dodge charger and skidoos <laughs> and uh there's a guy on the back of one of the skidoos with a camera and you know how big those cameras are it's not a freaking gopro and they are just going like full speed and you're like okay this is just wild like knowing what they are doing in order to get these shots and the film is gorgeous like it's absolutely beautiful and moody and interesting and fun that strip scene is like straight out of a doors music video it's glorious yeah you're right you're right you're right you're right it's yeah. cool but yeah we don't want to oversell it <laughs> <laughs> but i do i do so okay here's the thing i will say that everything that you described of the like yes there's a stripper this is what happened her name is Gina she's played by Celine Lomez who people will remember is getting decapitated in The Silent Partner. She's great. There's that whole element. That's like the last half hour of the film. For the first hour, it's incredibly slow. And there is one really good pool hustle scene in there, which is excellent. But you're dealing a lot with the social consciousness aspect of it. And this NFB NFB uh, film crew that's come to talk to the textile workers. And you're dealing with the social conscious element. So it almost feels like it's two completely different films. But what ties into it is that now you're realizing, oh, these are the good guys who are getting handicapped by the system who are trying to do good but can't because they're playing by the rules. And then you have that whole speech done by, I guess he's the pimp, he's our promoter or something similar where you have to be a bad guy in order to get anything done in this world. And you're like, okay, that's his kind of not all men argument. I got it. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the scene, just the scene, when the documentary crew and they're all you know like geeks well not geeks but like intellectuals from Montreal they're sitting in the bar and she puts her the jukebox on and she starts dancing it's really cool you know and they're, it's just like yeah, it is really a social commentary at first so you get a snapshot of Quebec society in the 70s until the violence. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm sure that was it too. There's just little things that I love, like the fact that the, the uh, it's basically a motorcycle gang on skidoos. Uh, yeah. They're called Les Penguins, which I love. It's like, yes, the penguins are doing terrible things to people. I love that it's uh, very much the beginning of Denis Arquet and everything he was going to be doing. He's using a lot of his, like, who would later be his staple actors within this film. So uh, you've got people like Claude Blanchard, uh, Celine Lomez would do 
more of his stuff. Gabriel Alcan, his his brother, is in this as the director. So he's kind of assembling his crew who's going to go on later to do a lot of his bigger stuff. And he's throwing them challenges. Like, this is a hard movie. Everything they're being asked to do is incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 really cool. I mean, just talk, I haven't seen it in a long time. But just talking about it now, I want to see it again after you, you've talked about it. Because I've seen it a couple of times, maybe three times. But such a long time ago. And even the last time is more than five years ago. And I want to see it again because it was it's really cool. It's very arty also in the way the montage, uh, the stuff that they do. I mean, it's there's some cool stuff in there. And you're right. It's Arcan trying his stuff out before it became staple moves, you know? Yeah. And that is to the credit of Cinepix, which we will talk about very briefly right now. How much do you know about Cinepix and kind of what they do? Not, not much except for the... Um, now that you mentioned it and before the interview you mentioned it, I, I googled them and then I saw some movies I had seen from them so it was exploitation films and Ivan Reitman was in there Cronenberg was also through there so maybe you should uh, enlighten the audience totally okay I'm going to be doing a much bigger thing, thing on Cinepix coming up so this is kind of like a, a basic rundown but uh, here's what you need to know Cinepix was for all intents and purposes Canada's Corman so like they just churned out all of these exploitation films uh, movies that were ripping from other films as fast and as hard as possible. The difference was is that they kind of allowed people to play within their own sandbox in terms of what they wanted to create scriptally. I'm going to say scriptally. So you got things like the social commentary of Shivers and of course Gina, things like that. As long as there was boobs and explosions and all and blood and all that kind of stuff, people could really do what they want. And so our filmmakers, who are now some of our most celebrated filmmakers, like David Cronenberg, who made Shivers and Rabid through that, um, they were able to create defined roles and defined voices for themselves using these budgets and making these weird, wacky films. They were also some of the first people to take advantage of the tax shelter era. So they were very much making movies with the money of doctors and dentists and and really taking yeah. full advantage of that tax credit to be able to churn out these films that uh, some of them are freaking masterpieces and some of them are utterly disposable. The big thing they're responsible for is creating an entire new genre of film called maple syrup porn, which is basically softcore porn made in Canada and launched a lot of careers that way. So yay, Cinepix. We're going to talk about more of that. But I mean, this is how people train. Like, did you find making genre films or or that kind of similar thing is a great training ground for becoming a filmmaker? It's funny because I never set out to make genre films, and yet my films get played in genre film festivals. <laughs> so one day soon, I'm going to try to do a real genre film. Like, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to do a horror action film. But uh, Basically, yeah, because I, I didn't grow up watching art films. I grew up watching, uh, you know, like American films. That's how I learned English. And um, for me, the arts was more, uh, you know, reading plays, poetry, watch, you know, seeing paintings was more the opera. So film for me was a way to learn, to learn English. And in my 20s, I really liked kung fu movies. So when I went to Vancouver Film School in Vancouver, I enrolled in a karate course uh, with uh, one of the teachers who was actually take, taking a film course with me. And so what we do on the weekends and we take the little camera from the school and we'd go shoot like karate movies on the beach and just with the, <laughs> just with the his students, you know, we just like direct everybody. And that's how I learned to do like action scenes and weird stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of a way for me to, uh, learn genre in a way why don't we learn action and um learn people yelling at each other so it's kind of a little laboratory and it's kind of fun because it kind of catered to my little you know the kid in me basically the kid who liked dungeons and dragons and action movies but at the same time i could not help 
want to tell the story of my my mother myself you know you said filmmakers write about what they know and in my case you know cancer has been a big part of my life you know my mom had it for my almost my entire youth and then eight nine years ago i got diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer in my leg as well and i'm okay now but i nearly lost the leg the chances of survival were about 50 percent and so i really went through the ringer and so uh that actually spawned the idea for my next feature, which is a psychological thriller that takes place in the hospital. And it's going to be the second part of my cancer trilogy. But there's going to be action, there's going to be sex, there's going to be like dark humor. It's going to be, a, I guess, a genre film, a psychological thriller, but with stuff from my own life and the realities of dealing with that disease in, the, in our crowded Quebec hospital system, which is completely tragic and completely funny in a, in a silly way. Oh my so God. <laughs> uh, I guess I mix the two, but I guess that's the way I do it. So sometimes I, I envy the... I envy the other filmmakers who went through real, you know, university art school film at UCAM or Concordia and have their uh, their kind of artist uh, mission and their process. I don't really. It's more like it's a mix of cathartic stuff from my own life and stuff that really gets me going and gets me the goosebumps, like you know, male frontal nudity and happy face and uh, people, you know, uh, the disfigured people shoving, putting their faces in an extreme close-up and sticking their tongues out so that the audience will be like, what the hell's going on here, you know? And the audience is stuck watching it. Yeah, basically, it's a mix of those two things. But with that, you're also shocking people, which uh, Alcan uses very well in Gina. I mean, we talked of Trigger Warning. We talked about that graphic gang rape scene. And it is extremely graphic. But what happens in it um, that I think is very clever and very interesting is that it takes the time because there's 15 people in that scene. Right. And they're showing you how each of them react and how each of them are involved, uh, whether they want to be or not. But the fact that no one is standing up and helping her and saving her and there's that many people. And this was a group decision and how that kind of gang violence works and what that means. And I mean, not so uh, subtly, the Canadian national anthem is playing at the same time. Um, <laughs> but it is so heightened and so stylized and and still very disturbing and upsetting, but it pulls away in a way where you can actually watch it. It doesn't, at no point does it, I mean, it's still horrible, but at no point does it really feel like, oh, this is this is kind of too much. Like I, I think about um, the leaving Las Vegas uh, gang rape scene uh, and that was, I just found that intolerable. And this when I was like, okay, this is interesting, and it even though it is exploitation film, I can see why this is here and what he's trying to do, and that it's serving a purpose and a point. So having those moments where it's uh, it's wild and it's in your face and it's it's uh, horrible are really helping, but but it's still stylized in a way that I can tolerate it and I can I can be in it and I can engage in it where it's interesting allows me to process that more and it allows me to process your message more, and that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I cannot speak for women, uh, you know, in relation to to a rape scene because it's it's um, like you said, you, you spoke about it, but it's true that it's not like he put many scenes like that in the movie. He just put one, and the whole movie is kind of about that. And uh, uh, it to me, it certainly didn't feel exploitative, even though it's an exploitation film, uh, because of the reasons you just mentioned. It's true. Uh, but I'm glad that women like you react that way because I think that's what he set out to do probably. Uh, I have to ask him because sometimes I see him. I saw him in post-production during Happy Face. He was finishing his latest film and we talked a lot. And I remember telling him he, I really love Gina, but I never asked him about that scene and stuff like that. So next time I see him, if I do, I'll ask him. I'll ask the Gina. Because <laughs> um, 
Montreal is a small town, so you could run into people like that. I don't know. I mean, as for my films, what I do is the guy side of me, the kind of stupid fraternity. I, I was never in a frat, but like the fraternity humor in me might want to do exploitative things like having disfigured people insult each other. But what I did for Happy Face is basically I showed it to them and I asked them, well, what happens in your life? Like basically it was like, well, uh, did you guys get insulted? And when we trained, you know, for acting, I was like, how about you write all the insults people have told you in your life and I'll do the same and we'll all do the same. And then you read it out to me. So we'll all feel what you've been through. And so we constructed like the scenes like that, where basically it was some of their stories were really woven into their characters. And so um, whatever they said was their words and what it was stuff that they had lived through. So I guess um, they certainly didn't feel exploited and they felt it was true and they wanted it to be on screen. So I think the audience felt that because nobody, when they saw the film said, oh, you know, this is like wrong for whatever reason. The process for me is basically telling them, look, this is my story. This is what I had to live through with my mom. I was ashamed of my own mother. So imagine when I look at somebody like you in a supermarket, for sure I'll be ashamed of you, no matter how much you explain your face and, and how nice you are. So how about we work out a way where we're going to pass that? And so that was a process of training for the film, and that that's what I wanted the film to be. I wanted the film to be the machine to change your opinion. So for the first six, seven minutes, you're like, what the fuck is this? Because you've got their faces on the big screen. Oh, I just swore. Anyway. And so uh, <laughs> what the hell is this? You have their faces on the big screen. But after a while, you get used to them, and you don't look at the faces anymore. And you realize, wait a minute, these people are not victims. They're just like dicks like you and I. You know, they're just like regular people with their flaws and – and I think a lot of the audiences have said this. After watching the movie, it's not about the face anymore. So I kind of discovered this process in making Happy Face. And I want to do more of that stuff in my future films, whether they be genre or not. So uh, which is kind of a bit of a documentary approach to it at the same time. Yeah, there's definitely a cinema verite aspect of that, of like we're going to show people for who they are, just kind of acting and reacting and allowing to tell them their own stories on camera. And uh, and, and that's something that I, I think is kind of the way movies are going in general, at least in the indie world, because it's such a reaction to now we have these big thrillers, which are or these big like Marvel movies, et cetera, we'll bring those out, which are very visually appealing and are absolutely beautiful and, and that kind of thing. But there's nothing really inside it. It's, it's all visual candy. So as a direct result, our indie films are becoming more honest, more raw, more real, because that's also fulfilling a need and a craving we have as a society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, even the films that are dramas where they're going to take a really well-known great actor and they're going to put him or her through the ringer. They're going to they're going to play the kind of like, I mean, back in the day, the autistic uh, guy with Rain Man or uh, somebody that's handicapped or disabled. And some films are getting a lot of backlash because they're they're putting, you know, uh, disfigured makeup on people or uh like the movie Wonder with that kid and Julia Roberts. I mean, he's a normal kid, so they just put makeup on him. And some people are objecting to that. Now, that's not my struggle. But what I found out is that instead of trying to write something that I don't know and take a skilled actor to try to emulate life, I'm like, why don't I try to take life and just bring it to the screen and make something cathartic for, you know, the person that's living that condition and myself and see the results, you know, so that the film it has an actual worth not in a commercial visual product, but also as the process we undertook to make it. I mean, um, it just feels 
just warms my heart a little bit more. And in case your film is not a success, at least you've changed people's lives in your own. So uh, I guess that's the way I'm going to go in certain cases. You know, it was something I discovered with Happy Safe, but I kind of like it. In relation to Gina in that way, because he's obviously using it as a sort of way to get his his original NFB film, which, as you said, was censored and canceled for, I believe, a decade. They put it in the in the vaults for a decade. It was a way to kind of make that, but to co- covertly do it. And then that's kind of why the back end is tacked on with like that ultra boobs and blood violence. <laughs> that's yeah. how much do you feel like you have to incorporate those two those two things that you need to have the social message possibly a little more artfully than Kang has done in this one, integrate the social message with the actual entertainment value, which you have to have, especially in order to get producers on board. Okay. Interesting question, because Arcan's film was censored for like, yeah, you're right, six to 10 years. And then the, the textile industry changed in the early 80s in Quebec. And so my dad used to work in the textile industry mm-hmm. as a technician, uh, not an engineer, but somebody who drafted the plants for the big plants. And uh, but Arcan's film got censored, so now you have people, I mean, now we always say that horror films are like a social commentary, like, you know, Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead, but people, they'll make a, a horror film and they're going to say it's an environmental parable because the swamp thing came from toxic waste. And, <laughs> and, and it's a film about that, that, that um, like, a revenge women woman movie like uh, Vengeance or Revenge or the French movie that came out a few years ago they'll be like they'll be like it's a feminist movie because she takes revenge and owns her narrative and I'm like yeah but it's not gonna get censored so I think now people are not tackling the real taboos I mean maybe they are but not in the mainstream at all because they don't really get censored I mean now it's just the films are uh, a lot of the times when they're genre and I mean don't get me wrong I we have to do this because that's how we get we get them made they're uh, commercial products right that intermediaries make a percentage of off of distributors sales agents uh, whatnot you know TV stations VOD platforms so I don't know I mean I'm sure I mean we have we'd have to see like which filmmakers are able to nail both, you know, like the commercial kind of like exploitative aspect of it and yet a big ass social commentary. I think Peel's movie, the one about, um, I forget the name. Get Not, Out or? Yeah, Get Out. Yeah. Get Out might pass for something like that. It was clever enough that, you know, the social commentary was heavy handed and super far out and worked. And yet it was a freaky movie at the same time. I mean, I, I found it refreshingly, you know, refreshing when I saw it. But so... I don't know if I, I, I probably I lost myself in answering your question. So. No, no, no. I think we're actually in an interesting place that we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet because so much Canadian film falls into this sort of we are making covert social commentary because this is the only way we can make movies. But because of the tax shelter, because of the way our government funding works, et cetera, et cetera, we have to make it as marketable as possible and make this thing as uh, add, like add on those extra layers of genre. We have to make yeah. genre movies. I mean, Cronenberg, this is like 90 percent of his career until he starts really making it big in Hollywood in like the late I want to say it probably until he hits like Eastern Promises and like right. uh, A History of Violence all that but I think about something like uh, Midsummer or um, Midsummer yeah. or uh, Hereditary which are not Canadian films but those are dramas that have disturbing elements they're not horror films so it's also interesting to me to see what how how we're now changing what genres are and what they what they can do and what people are willing to watch. Right. I mean, yeah, I watched Harry the Terry. I didn't, I mean, it's well-crafted, but I didn't really like it that much. But mm-hmm. think of it, what Arcand did in the day will be the equivalent of a filmmaker 
being financed an indie film by a studio yeah. and then the studio not doing a good job releasing it or not releasing it and the filmmaker making another film openly criticizing that studio for being in cahoots with let's say the Trump administration or Facebook and imagine it would be the equivalent of make doing that and then try to get a career after that because the NFB was sponsoring a lot of stuff from Marco and other filmmakers in Quebec back in the day so it was a big move so for me, unless we see somebody doing something that ballsy now, if I, we translate it to today, sure. But in the meantime, we're not there with Midsummer or Her- Hereditary, right? No, no I don't not think even so. remotely. Not even remotely. So it's kind of like, yeah, sure, okay, fine. But let's say a filmmaker would tackle on the studio or um, – and some might, some do, you know, like America's immigration policy and they'd be a U.S. citizen or, you know, in there and it would get tricky. So um, like back in the day, people got – censored or you know for real with their films because it was a big thing so you know nowadays uh, i don't know but some are doing it out there but um we have to find them we have to search for them i guess yes that's exactly it i think it happens i think it's more common in other countries where films that are getting released here especially i mean you see places under certain dictatorships which are allowing films in exactly exactly. like iranian filmmakers that can't go back to their countries that have been jailed i mean it's a different story right than uh than uh, the brand of horror we see in the u.s that that tacks on a little message um but you know such is life i guess (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Okay. So if you were to tell people why they should go see Gina in one sentence, why should they see it? Because it's not a boring francophone Québécois film. <laughs> the film's got flaws, but it's actually stylized and slick. It's got violence. It's a bit of a genre film. And yet it's deep. I- I'm not a big fan of Denis Arcand's latest movies. But this one, because of this one, whenever I see him, I bow. <laughs> I bow yeah. deeply and I'm like, yes, master. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just because of that, because it's cool, because it's far out. It's a bit of a UFO. If you see it now, you're going to be like, what the hell is this? And I think you're going to have fun watching it. So that was a long sentence. It was a run-on sentence because I'm French. <laughs> that was okay. It was spoken very quickly like you guys do. So I think you're all right. Beautiful. How do people find you? How do they find your work? We've talked a lot about Happy Face. How do people see that? I'm the worst in terms of I don't even have a website. I'm working on that. So, okay. Uh, well, there's some of my short films are on Vimeo. Vimeo Alexandre Franqui. Uh, you can see some short films that I've made. And I believe The Wild Hunt and Happy Face are available on iTunes in Canada. Fabulous. Rent, purchase, go check them out. However you can, get them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and check them out. Like, I, I enjoyed both of them very much. They're both really interesting film, films from a really interesting filmmaker. Uh, and also, I really like your your film that you made so that you don't have to tell your cancer story. That delighted me to no end. Frankie is back. That's pretty great. Oh, no, no, great. Yeah, well, I'm good. good. I mean, I have an English version, so if somebody wants to pass it around, we have a dubbed version in English. You know? <laughs> Just to make things a little easier for us incredibly lazy Anglophones. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, as per usual, you can find me and the podcast on the Twitter at RCM Pod for the podcast and personally at Le Shrimpton. That's the masculine Le Shrimpton over there. Also, we have a Patreon. If you like the work that we're doing, bringing you new awesome Canadian films that you need to check out and great interviews with great filmmakers, uh, you should donate to us. Cup of coffee, guys. Come on. Give us a go. That's uh, patreon.com slash rcmpod. Thank you so much for joining me, Alexandre. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It was great. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. 
Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.